0: Uh, and all of that. But just remember this, that it seems to have been a very, very dark time in history. Uh, You know, the time that Isaiah spoke of is still 100 years in the future, as we were studying over the last few weeks. The the, the darkness is, is very dark, and it seems to be growing ever darker in Israel and even in Judah to the south. Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom, to the kingdoms of, uh, of that continue to be called by the name of Israel. Uh, and we know that one of the, the king that has been really primary in all of this was King Ahab and that he was a very wicked and evil person. Now since we left 1 Kings and Elijah, Ahab has actually died. He died in a battle of Ramoth Gilead with the Aramaeans, or we would know them as Assyrians. And just as God said that it would be true, the dogs licked up his blood after he died. His son Ahaziah is now reigning in his place. And I would love to be able to tell you that he was a man after God's own heart and that things really changed as he came. Uh, upon the throne unlike his father, but that's not what a, what the Bible teaches. It teaches that he was a man very much like his father that continued to pursue foreign idols and pagan gods and things like this, and his heart was not given to the Lord God of Israel. As a matter of fact, and he, well, didn't he just put him on a back burner? He utterly and absolutely rejected the, the one and true God of Israel, the living God, the only God. This is how Ahaziah is described in 1 Kings 22. He reigned two years over Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father and in the way of his mother, who was Jezebel, in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. So that's where we begin. Ahaziah is reigning. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, and Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from the sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messenger of the... The king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. Well, if you are a student of the Bible, you should know something about Moab. Moab is no longer a nation today. Moab would be in the region of where Jordan is. Actually, Moab would be in the area of the West Bank. You know, when you hear, talk, hear people talk about Israel, they talk about the East Bank. And they talk about the West Bank. It would be the area that the East Bank on the other side of the Jordan. That's where we're going. Moab was a son of Lot by an incestuous relationship with one with his oldest daughter now. We know this. So what I'm telling you here is this, is Israel and Moab were distant relatives of one another. They were cousins to one another. But they've never gotten along with one another, not since the very beginning. Uh, They were pagan idol worshipers. Their God's name was Chemosh, but very similar to Baal, like we've talked about with the land of Canaan and Israel. Uh, They were one of the nations. And remember when Israel was approaching the promised land the second time, not the first time, but the second time, they asked permission of the Moabites to go through their land, and they refused to give it to them. As a matter of fact, they came out in force against them. And remember Balaam? Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam, this false prophet, to come and curse Israel, and he refused to do that and, and all of that. But what we find is this, is immediately after that, once they went into the land, they moved into the years of the judges, and during the, the time of the judges, Moab abs, uh, actually subjugated Israel. In other words, Israel was under Moab Moabite rule for a time, and the first judge the second judge, Ehud, actually delivered Israel from the Moabites. But you're going to see that going on and on. If you look through the rest of the history, what it is is sometimes Israel's over Moab, other times Moab's over Israel, and back and forth and back and forth. Nothing like you would expect to see with relatives, distanced cousins with one another. Again, if you want to know where we're talking about, we're talking about the, the east bank of the Jordan River today. Now, let me ask you something. Would that be considered to be a place of peace today? Mm-hmm. Certainly not. Uh, and we know for all kinds of reasons, uh, but we just understand this, that this, this thing that's been going on for millennia continues. Uh, distance cousins want nothing to do with each other. Now, uh, let's just look at verse number 2. Ahaziah fell through the grating in his upper room, that is in Samaria, and became weak. So he sent messengers and said to him, Go consult with Beelzebub, the uh, the god of Ekron, to find out if I will cover from this injury. Now, this is basically the idea that we have as to this injury that Ahaziah suffered. Uh, in those days, very often in, in rooms that were multi-story, they had to come up with kind of innovative ways of getting air to flow from upper and lower rooms. And not only that, but also light. If you have a well-lit upper room, one of the ways to let light into a darker room beneath was to have basically gratings in the floor. And apparently Ahaziah was walking across one of these gratings and it collapsed and he fell through the hole. And we don't know exactly how seriously he was injured, but we do know this, that he was injured enough that he was in fear he was going to die from his injuries. Well, we understand some things, and that is, what are some of the factors that contribute to whether someone's going to be injured or die or whatever from a fall? And One of those would be how far they fall, right? I read an amazing statistic the other day that I had never heard this before. Do you, do you really, and I have a hard time believing it, but they're saying that 500,000 people, uh, half a million people, every year in the world die from slipping and falling, whether they're walking on ice or whether they're walking on this, that, or the other. Now, doesn't that, that, that figure blow your mind? We're talking about just slipping and falling, maybe hitting your head on the concrete, and that's the end of the story. We've also heard phenomenal, unbelievable things about people falling very long distances and surviving. I can remember I read about this again this week in preparation for the sermon, but I remember when this happened that there was an airline stewardess who fell somehow from an airliner at thirty something thousand feet. no parachute, and she somehow she not only tell she was broken and mangled and beat up and banged up, but she somehow survived. The fall. She fell in mud or something like that. It's, I mean, it's, you hear it and you say, no, I'd, I'd have to, that's one of those things I would have to see to believe it. But if something has been verified over and over again, the hardness of the surface that burst that, that and impacts when they fall has a lot to do with it too. You know, if you fall on a bed of roses, things are not going to be very comfortable because of the thorns. But we understand there's a difference between falling on a tile floor and falling on a carpeted floor, right? The primary thing, however, is this is what body part actually absorbs the force of the impact? You know, is it an arm, is it a leg, is it at your head, uh, is it some vital organ a- area in your body? We know this, that whatever the fall was, it was significant enough to make Ahaziah wonder if he was going to survive from his injuries. So he sends messengers. It's funny, in the Hebrew, the word that we translate as messenger is the same word that we translate as angel, and the context is determined what we're thinking about. When a messenger goes forth from God, that's an angel. When a messenger goes forth from a king or from, another, from a person, then that is a messenger. So he sends his messengers. And notice this. He doesn't say go to the prophets of Baal or go to the prophets of Asherah in Israel or even go to uh, the temple in Jerusalem He sends them way further south. He sends them to one of the ancient cities of the Philistines. Just remember that. He doesn't do what his father would have done. What Ahab would have done would have been to send send his messengers to the prophets of Baal and Asherah. He doesn't do that. So it almost seems like Ahaziah has learned a little bit of the lesson that was taught on Mount Carmel. But he hasn't learned enough of it. Like it was proven to him that there basically were no gods in Israel and all that. So what does he do? He doesn't accept the real and true Lord God. He looks for another idol. He goes to the land of the Philistines or sends his messengers to the land of... Of the Philistines to inquire of their pagan gods, Beelzebub, which literally means Lord of the Flies, God of the Flies. Which you and I would not think to be a very complimentary description, right? (laughs) <laughs> maybe we see Lord of this and Lord of that and all that, but we wouldn't put flies way at the top of uh, the category of things that we would maybe ascribe to deities. Uh, but this particular deity was one that they believed had great control over swarms of insects. Now, you and I don't really have to bother too much with swarms of insects, unless you're talking about maybe love bugs during certain times of the year and, and those kinds of things. Uh, but when was the last time you saw a swarm of flies? I did the other day, actually, when I was cooking, barbecuing. But most of us are old old enough, and if you lived in Florida years and years ago, you know that flies were something we had to deal with all the time, right? you had AC, the house was open, you had flies in the house, everybody had flies' waters. You wouldn't have found a house in Florida to have flies' waters. They were a real issue. The worst example of this I ever saw, I was driving a truck one time when I was in college for my brother-in-law who was, worked at a meat packer. And I was making delivering meat to the different restaurants in Ocala. And it was one over on Pine Street. I'll never forget this in all of my life. It was a Chinese restaurant. And they did most of their food prep you know, on an open porch in the back. Okay? The part that no one ever saw unless you happened to be there making deliveries. And I pulled up there one day, and they had these trays of chicken laying out, and they were so covered with flies you couldn't even see the chicken. Now, for us today, flies on occasion are kind of a nuisance, but for the most part. For all kinds of reasons, they're not that big of an issue anymore. But ancients, some of the ancients actually believed that flies were endowed with prophetic powers. Now, that's hard to imagine. That they had some power of prophecy. Flies did Just to jump ahead into the New Testament, remember this, that the, at one time the Pharisees came to Jesus and they were accusing him of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub. The same God, basically. Just a little bit very in the name. Jesus, at that point, describes him as the prince of Demons. Whom you and I would know as Satan, Lucifer, the devil, etc., etc., etc. So he sends his messengers to appeal to this God, Beelzebub. That the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there's no God in Israel you're going to consult with Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, what I want to talk about is this, is is, was Ahaziah really seeking God? I mean, evidently he believed that there was God, he didn't know much about God, but, but do you think he was really seeking the true and living God in, in, in commissioning these guys to go do what they were doing? We'd all obviously say no. Note here that Elijah goes. He doesn't complain. He doesn't say, it's not really convenient for me to go right now, Lord. You know, I've got this appointment, that appointment. I'm not feeling too good today. Can't we put it off till tomorrow? You know, and all of that. God tells him to go, and he goes. And this is what we found with Elijah in every case when God has sent him forth with a message to different people. Well... If you read through the prophets, what you're going to find is that they paint a very dark picture of most of the history that was going on in Israel and Judah and for hundreds of years there. Just a real darkness, a deafness to the word of God, a blindness to the light of God, etc., etc., etc. And what you would find is this, is that can be said of the world and just really every generation ever since the Garden of Eden. There's been this darkness, and we know it's related to the sinfulness of man uh, and the suffering and all of that that has come along right uh, with it. But this is how Paul described the world 18 centuries later, and it's a very good description of the world and of Israel in the days of Ahaziah. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. He's saying here that Ahaziah had no excuse. There was ample evidence around him to understand that there was a true and living God, and he was the real thing. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Ultimately, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. There's a sense in which we live in a very different world today. Our world, in a lot of ways, is very different than, than Paul's was, and Paul's was even very different in some ways from Elijah's. I mean, we have TVs today, we have radios today, we have all these electronic things, and, uh, and, and a lot of them still mystify me. I I have a smartphone now, and it's way smarter than I am because it can do all kinds of things that I, I don't even know how to figure out how to do them. Think about the different variety of food that we eat today. We can eat Mexican one day, Chinese the next day, Thai food the next day, and so on and so on and so on. There's a great variety of food that we have today, and in those days, people basically ate, for the most part, the same thing over and over again. And very often, they were very happy to have it. Air travel. Air travel's only been around for a 100 years or so, right? How much is that compared to the whole history of the world? Not very much. So there are ways in which you can say that the world we live in today is very different than the world has ever been. But at the same time, we understand this. There's a big, great sense in which The the world that uh, Ahaziah and Elijah lived in and Jesus lived in and Paul lived in, we also live in, right? There's a sense in which the world hasn't really changed a whole lot, that there is this darkness that is always there. In general, people have not changed. Sin is still here. It is amazing how people over and over again pass right by God, seeking something as a substitute. Rather than accepting what is most reasonable, what is most logical, what makes the most sense, and this, that, and the other, it is amazing to me how far people will go to still try to explain God away, the true God. And they put their hopes and their ideas and their beliefs in things that really have no value at all. They're not God. None of these. Was Beelzebub really a God? No. No. There's only one God, the true God, the living God, the God of Israel, but the God that's revealed in the Bible, right? Right? And we understand this, that Jesus Christ is is the principal way or the most important way, most most clear-cut, obvious way that God has revealed himself to people like us. Some of you have heard the name Richard Dawkins. I've used it a number of times. He is one of the most outspoken atheists in the world today. He's written a number of books. The first one that had much significance was called The Delusion of God. And it was a direct attack against theism, against people like us who believe in God. It was hailed as being, it was a number one bestseller, New York Times bestseller, very quickly. Very quickly. Made him tons of money. Uh, Recently, he says some things that really surprised me. And the reason I use him as an example is he's really very outspoken about his atheism. He is. He comes, he's right up front and and whatever. And he's a well-known scientist. And he has been deemed one of the most intellectual people in the world today by certain groups of other folks. So recognize a very brilliant man. He came out recently and said some things that shocked me, and one of those was this, and that is uh, with radical Islamic terrorism advancing into the world. Richard Dawkins said, you know what? I think Christianity might be the only thing that can stop it. Now, doesn't that blow your mind? (laughs) But anyway, I was watching recently this video of Richard Dawkins, and he was debating a Roman Catholic cardinal, George Pell on the issues of the existence of God. And let me just tell you, I don't agree with 90% of what George Pell says either. He has a very small view of God based upon what he says. But what they were talking about is this. How did the universe come into existence? And also, how is it that life came to be? And Richard Dawkins said this, which astounded me that he would say this. He said, that he said it really is unreasonable and un- illogical to believe that, that nothing produced all of this. But, you know, I was listening really attentively when he said that. But what he said was this. He said there really has to be something there, but whatever it is, it really is very simple, and it is not complicated, and it certainly cannot be God. In essence, what he would, would define is nothing, but his nothing actually is something. I mean, doesn't that just make the, 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 just the clearest, most logical sense, that if something is, it had to be made by something and it had to be made of something that is eternal or by a being that had the ability to make something out of nothing right it is ridiculous to believe that there was at one time there was nothing and then suddenly nothing produced this universe The same thing is true as far as life goes. It is absolutely laughable to believe that non-life, life life, or things that had no life, actually produced life. What I'm telling you guys is this, is from a scientific perspective, it is more logical, it is more reasonable to believe in God than it is not to. Now, something happened during that conversation, and it was this. Richard Dawkins said something, and the people in the audience started laughing. And he didn't take it very kindly because he's not used to being laughed at because he's, he's this bona fide genius in the scientific community and, and all of that. He's not used to people laughing at things that he says. And what he said was, what is funny about that? And the cardinal said this. He said, well, I think it's pretty humorous that you're trying to define nothing. You see where I'm going, guys? It can't be nothing. It's illogical. It's, it's, it's unreasonable to go to, to the idea that there was ever a time when there was nothing. Because if that time existed, there would be nothing still. Right? But you see in Dawkins here, the same thing you see with Ahaziah and so many people see the history of the world. They pass by the most logical, most reasonable, most realistic answer to their questions and they settle for something far less. People do it over and over and over and over again. Are idols a big part of the picture in today's world, where there are religions where they still do really literal idol worship? Now we understand that idols go far beyond that. that an idol in your life is anything that you put before God, anything it doesn't matter if it's some material possession or just the money that buys it or other people. Other relationships, this or the other, anything you put before God is an idol. Now, can anyone here honestly say, with all their heart, mind, and soul, and strength, that every living moment that they have always put God first and nothing else has ever stepped in front of Him? What about in the last hour? You get my point? My point is this: is we all need Jesus. Ahaziah needed Jesus. Elijah needed Jesus. Ahab needed Jesus. We all need Jesus, and if we settle for anything less, we have nothing but an idol. Nothing but an idol, and 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 it, it, it is worthless it will not save anybody we're all making new year's resolutions and i want to be willing to bet you that 90% of it's going to be i'm going on a diet on monday or tuesday you know monday's kind of a holiday so we'll wait till tuesday right what about something along these lines That our new year's resolution would be to seek God with all of our heart. Be involved, engaged in putting the idols of our life to death. What if we committed this morning that I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year? Maybe for the first time. And let me tell you, if you do that, you'll be... You'll be one of the very rare ones that ever does it in their whole lifetime. It is doable. Did you know that if you started reading the Bible and you just that's all you did, that you could read through the whole Bible in about 72 hours? That's amazing. You'd have to be a fast reader, don't get me wrong. But when it comes to New Year's resolutions, how often we've... we've we substitute things that are really vain and this, that, and the other, don't really have any eternal importance or significance or anything like this. What about if this year was going to be different? What do you think? Do we all need to grow in do we all need Christ? Yes, we all desperately need Jesus. Do we all need to grow in Christ? Yes, we all desperately need to grow in Christ. And what if we try to do that together? I mean, it's always fun, right, when you do things with other people. It's always very helpful to do things with other people. We've got Bible studies that will be starting up in the next couple of weeks. We're here every Sunday morning, and we do the same thing on Sunday mornings that we've done this morning. We take God's Word, and we dissect it, and we take it, and we try to apply it to where we are and who we are and, uh, and all of that. Uh, great day to celebrate. It's a day that Lord has made. And what the Bible tells us is to rejoice and be glad in it. Not just on New Year's, but every day. Again, we will be back to 1030 next week.